Christmas celebration with a minimum of panic uh, concerning gifts. I don't know. How's that going? Oh, yeah. I, I need to start. Some of you are thinking right now. Oh, no. It's here. And, uh, but anyway, it's such a special season, and it's so good to spend it with you. So we have been looking at some of the original songs of Christmas and uh, uh, going through uh, some of those, and you might, uh, I mean, the, the overarching point of this is that um, songs in, its, in their most basic format are simply words, words that are put together that describe values, describe uh, various uh, things, and, uh, and they're what we listen to, and in their most basic form, they're what comes out of our mouth when something happens, good or bad or whatever um, it might happen. Now, we're, we often think of songs as always attached with uh, music, and uh, certainly music can multiply the words of songs, but in the songs that we've been looking at, there was no music accompaniment with them. They were simply expressions that burst out of the heart of people. And, uh, and the important thing to keep in mind is, is that songs are both a thermostat and they are a thermometer. Songs are a thermostat that determine what we value, our, our mindset, um, how we see things. Um, and that is a huge, huge, huge reality. And uh, we're all formed by the songs that we listen to. In fact, they would say, uh, many would say that you're, you're formed primarily by the songs that you, you experience going through adolescence. Or for those of us that got saved a little bit later, the songs that were prevalent within uh, the Christian church and during the days we got saved often become those very formative things, and so they become our favorite songs. And we get really irritated when the church moves on to new songs. And, uh, and, and, but that's the reason why, was they were so formative to us. So I got saved in 1974, and right in the middle of the Jesus movement, and so many of those songs were formative in correcting and adjusting my value system and my attitudes and all of that. And so I still will often sing those songs, and I will often listen to them, never expecting the church to revolve itself around me, because there's always these historic and there's always new expressions of that and God just wants to continue to use these songs to do that. And one of the greatest ways to tell how well we're doing is what songs are coming out of our mouths. What happens when something doesn't go right? What song comes out of your mouth? That's an EKG of our heart, <laughs> of, of our value system. And one of the great transformative works of Christ, I mean, this is just a miracle, is that He changes you from, in my case, using the name of the Lord in vain, to more often than not, not as often as it should be, of saying, Lord, I thank you. I don't particularly like this. This is sure frustrating. 
But I'm going to take you at your word that you work all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. That's a new song, isn't it? That's a transformative thing that takes place in our life. And we're all in the process of that. That's why coming together as a church to sing together is such a vital part. Because I don't know about you, but in the midst of singing, I, I realize I got to change some of my attitudes or I get reminded of things. And uh, that's the beauty. That's the point. That's the point of the whole deal. As one hymn said, you know, just tune our hearts to sing your praise. And, uh, and so I'm just so grateful for that part of our gatherings together. Well, we're in Luke chapter 2, where all of the original songs of Christmas come from. I don't know, Luke was a medical doctor, but he evidently liked songs, or he wanted to make sure that the original songs of Christmas got recorded for us. So grab a Bible and turn over uh, to Luke chapter 2 on your phones, uh, whatever, however you want to read the Word. And um, thank you so much to David and Megan and Brooke and Ryan for reading this passage for us and giving us a picture of what it looks like. We left off last week in verse 20 of chapter 2 with the shepherds going back after this grand experience that we'll walk through again on Christmas Eve, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told to them. And then we pick up in verse 21. And there's two, uh, two things that uh, get emphasized here for us. One is Mary and Joseph, what they do and why they do it. And, and part of that means they come into the temple, and there's this exchange in the temple with Simeon and then Anna. We're just going to look at Simeon this morning because we're looking at his song that is prompted there along with the circumstances that go on. And so um, let me pray, and then let's just jump in and look at Joseph and Mary with this new baby. So uh, Spirit of the living God, thank you for your word. Even as we were praying through it earlier, a few of us together, I just was struck with how um, I'm incompetent to bring to light all that you have in these few verses. And so, Lord, I thank you that where I'm incompetent, you're competent, and I want to thank you that you know every single person here this morning, and you know exactly what they need to hear from this, your word. And so I ask that you would do what you alone can do and that you would work in me to where I would be helpful to that process. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen, amen, amen. So verses 21 through 24 tell us some about Joseph and Mary with this new baby. And, um, and so you'll notice that in here, it tells us that they did two different things. One was on the eighth day when they gave the name that the angel had told them to give to the baby Jesus, and Jesus was circumcised. And then one was days later. We know from the Old Testament it was 33 days later. And, uh, and so we want to we see what they did, and we want to understand even more importantly why they did it. So verse 21 says, And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, he, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And so they had this, uh, 
tradition based upon the law that the name was given on the eighth day, and if it was a male child, uh, he was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, what's the big deal about this? Well, the big deal is if we go back to Genesis, in uh, Genesis 17, 9 through 11, it says this, God said further to Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. So that's Mary and Joseph. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And so circumcision became a sign of the covenant. What does that mean? It means it becomes an indicator uh, by the people who circumcise their, their sons that they believe in God and they want to live in relationship with God. It, it would a sign that they believe in God and they want to be a part of this covenant relationship with Him. So when we think about the human lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ, His birth to Mary caused Him to be a Jew, ethnically a Jew. With Joseph as His you know, legal father and Mary as His mother, both of them were of the tribe of Judah and of the lineage of David. And thus, it was through their human lineage that he was qualified to, to sit on the throne of David as was promised in the Old Testament. But it was his circumcision that officially made him part of the covenant community of God. It, it is this act that has the connotations that we believe in God, and we want to be a part of this covenant relationship, and we want our son to be a part of that as well. So for a Jew to not circumcise a son would be saying, I don't believe in God, and I don't want to be a part of what God is doing. And so this was a very big deal. Now, there's a second part of what happens 33 days later. Because here's the way the Old Testament law said for a woman who just had had a child. If they had a male child, they were unclean for 40 days. If they had a female child, they were unclean for 80 days. And the way they moved out of that uncleanness was that they would go to the temple and that they would bring a sacrifice, as it says down there, uh, verse 24, to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And one of them was to be a burnt offering. One of them was to be a sin offering. The burnt offering was an offering saying, I'm totally dedicated to God. A sin offering was saying, God, thank you that you have forgiven my sins. And so this, this new mother was to bring that to the temple. And, uh, and actually, they were supposed to bring a sheep but there's a provision for very poor people to be able to bring two pigeons or two turtle doves. And this is one of the reasons that we know how poor Mary and Joseph were. It's one of the reasons that we would say the wise men had not yet visited them. Because if the wise men had visited them, as we often see depicted in the manger scene, they would have had gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they would have gotten a sheep. And Mary would have brought a sheep for the burnt offering and for the sin offering. 
And so, uh, and so Mary would be bringing this into the temple to move her from being ceremonially unclean and unable to participate in the religious festivals of Israel, and so she could move back in to being able to participate in all the religious festivals as a Jewish woman. And so she is doing that. In verse 23, though, it says something else is going on. Uh, Verse 22 and 23. At the end of verse 22, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Now, what's going on there? Well, this goes back to Exodus chapter 13, when God brought the people of Israel out from underneath the bondage in Egypt. What was the final plague? It was that he struck every firstborn male of man and beast, and he put them to death unless what? Unless they had sacrificed the Passover lamb and had put the blood on the doorpost, right? Well, as a reminder of that, Exodus 13 The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast. It belongs to me. Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery, for by a powerful hand the Lord brought you out from this place. And so the second thing that would happen is that if you had a male child, if the firstborn male Uh, the family would bring to the temple and they would dedicate them to the Lord as a reminder of how God spared their firstborns when he went through the land of Egypt and he killed all of those who acted in unbelief and did not participate in the Passover lamb and the blood. And so, Jesus is the firstborn male. And so, they bring him to the temple. Now, you can see several times in here that it says, verse 22, according to the law. Verse 23, as written in the law. Verse 24, to what was said in the law of the Lord. And then what? Verse um, 27, to carry out for him the custom of the law. What do we know even more about Joseph and Mary? They lived according to the Old Testament word. They lived according to the Old Testament law. Now, if there was anybody who could have said, God speaks to me directly, I don't need to obey the word, I think it'd probably be them. What do you think? But God chose them because they had such a relationship of faith with God that they believed that what he said was the right and the best thing to do. And so, on the 40th day, they carry their 40-day-year-old baby into the temple to fulfill these requirements of the law on Mary's behalf as well as on Jesus' behalf. Now, what's going on here? Why is it important? Why are we told about this here? Well, probably the main reason that we're told about this here is so that we would understand that what God is doing here is a continuation of the Old Testament. It's a continuation of His redemptive work. It's a continuation of everything that He has said. He's not moving to plan B. This has always been plan A. 
And as a part of that, the Lord Jesus Christ would need to be faithful to every aspect of the law. And God put him in a home where his mom and dad would make sure that he obeyed the law before he even knew what the law was. Isn't that amazing? And so Mary and Joseph fulfilled on his behalf, if you will, they carried him through circumcision and the dedication of the temple so that he would be faithful to the whole law. Go on to the next slide there. Romans 8.3 says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. As an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. So what does this tell us? Uh, is there any problem or any fault with the law? What's the answer? No's the answer. Just say no. No. No fault in the law. What's the fault? The fault is that we're weak through the flesh. There's an inability for people to perfectly obey the law, right? That's always been true because we're sinners. And so what, what did God do? God sent His own Son, and this next, this next phrase is important, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Not in sinful flesh, but in the likeness of sinful flesh. Why? So that uh, as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He, he perfectly fulfilled that. So let me ask you, did God the Son, who left heaven and came to earth, did he need to be circumcised to enter into the covenant with God? He is God. He didn't have to do that to somehow put him in a relationship of belief with God. Did he need to be dedicated as the firstborn because of who he was? No, he's God. He is the one who redeemed them. He is the one who let them out. What is going on here? Jesus is identifying in his circumcision and in these dedications and later on in his baptism. And he doesn't do them because he's a sinner who needs these. But he's taking upon himself the obligations of his people so as to procure their redemption. He identifies with sinful people. So that one day when he is giving the Sermon on the Mount, he will say, do not think I came to abolish the law or prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In fact, he says what? Not a jot or a tittle the smallest marks of the Hebrew language will pass away until they're all fulfilled. Jesus perfectly fulfilled every Old Testament law. And here we're told that he perfectly fulfilled the ones before he even knew what they were because of Mary and Joseph. And so this is not plan B. And so here's Mary and Joseph carrying their 40-day-year-old baby into the temple because that's what the law says to do. And, uh, and they're bringing this all into the temple. And I mean, just picture this. They're walking into the temple with their new baby, and all of a sudden this man comes up to them and takes their baby out of their hands. Now, how would you like that, Mom? 
takes this baby out of her hands and lifts him up or holds him in his arms, we're told, and he breaks out in song. Who is this guy? Well, thankfully, we're told quite a bit about Simeon as well. And, and uh, there's lots to learn about Simeon. Let me just highlight five different things about Simeon here and, and who he is. And we'll go through this quickly. First of all, it says that he is righteous, verse 25, and devout. Righteous emphasizes his relationship with people. It emphasizes that he lived in right relationships with people based upon what God said. Devout has to do with his relationship with God. He was a devout person. He was devoted to God above all else. And uh, we actually chose this word to put it into our mission statement. And so in our mission statement, we go and we develop what? Devoted followers of Jesus Christ. We're working to grow in our devotion to follow Jesus, and we're helping other people to grow in their devotion to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as a particular aspect of both of those together, it tells us that he was looking for the consolation of Israel. Now, this is a very beautiful term to describe the Lord Jesus Christ. Consolation describes someone who comes along to help. They come along to help because they love you. They come along to bring encouragement. They come along to help you move from where you're stuck at on into whatever you should be experiencing in the fullness of life. And here it says that he was looking for the consolation of Israel. Now that's probably not a term that a lot of us think about as, as the Messiah being characterized in the Old Testament, but it's actually found throughout the Old Testament. The Messiah is described as the consoler of Israel, the one who will come to bring help to them. In fact, the only one who can come to bring help to them. Here's two contrasting verses from the Old Testament. Zechariah 10.2 says, For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. And you could say that way beyond just household gods and diviners. You could say that about anything this world has to offer. It really can't provide the infinite consolation that every single person needs, that the nation of Israel needs, that the whole world needs. Psalm 94, 19, when my anxious thoughts multiply within me. Is that ever a description of how our brains work? When our anxious thoughts multiply wouldn't it be nice if they just added? <laughs> I mean, that'd be a blessing. They don't add. They just multiply. What do we do? What's the solution to that? We find consolation by delighting, or your God's consolations delight my soul. God's help to me. God's care for me. And in fact, if you go back and read the first few verses or the verses right before that, it just multiplies that. And so what does the Old Testament say? It says there's really only one who can help, and that's God. There's only one that can console. There's only one who can move us from being stuck. 
There's only one who can move from anxious thoughts and worries multiplying and wandering around in our head and keeping us stuck, and that is God. That is God. Isaiah specifically uh, ties and uses this phrase, the consoler of Israel. And so it's found several times in the book of Isaiah. Probably most familiar to many of us is Isaiah 61, familiar to us because Jesus quotes from this uh, when he walks into the synagogue to begin his ministry, but this is what it says. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to console all who mourn. Now, some translations have comfort. It's, it's the same word, to console all who mourn. And so, what does it mean to console those who mourn? It is to say to the afflicted, there's help. There's help in Christ. To say to the brokenhearted, Christ will bind up your brokenheartedness. To say to those who are captives of sinful past and sinful patterns and, and shame because of sin, oh, you don't have to stay captive to all that stuff. There's one who can move you out of that and to bring freedom to prisoners, the favorable year of the Lord. And by the way, consolation always needs the help for those who want it and the justice upon those who don't want it. Consolation always has to have those two pieces to it. There has to be justice for the guilty. There has to be that other side of the coin. Otherwise, there is no consolation. Is there any consolation that somebody can walk in and shoot up a bunch of people and then take their own life? Is there any consolation in that? No, the consolation comes from the fact that the moment they took their own life, they stood before a living God who holds them absolutely accountable for their actions. That's what brings consolation. Now, this goes on in verse 3 to say this, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And so Simeon had uh, obviously uh, pretty steeped in the Old Testament, understood that the Messiah would be the consolation of Israel. He would be the true help to the people of Israel, and in fact, all the people. I sometimes wonder if amongst the God-fearing, uh, you know, God-loving people of that age, this was a very familiar term, and this is what they looked forward to in their Messiah, much as many of us today look forward to what? The second return of Christ. And, and that's just a common thing we're looking forward to. I think this was a common thing they looked forward to. This was the way they saw the role of the Messiah in the world of their day, that He would be the consolation of all of Israel. He would be the one who could truly give help. Now, unique to Simeon 
is that the Spirit of God, verse 26, had revealed to him that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, that's just a specific revelation that God gave to Simeon. And uh, man, there's so much in this text, we just wish we knew. I mean, did he know he was going to come as a baby? Or did he expect him to come out of the sky? Uh, How did he expect all this to unfold? We have no idea. We have no idea. And maybe he didn't either. But that's the beauty of being full of the Spirit in verse 27. And he just came into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out his custom of the law, he recognized him and he took him in his arms and he blessed God. He blessed God, and and we have this original song of Christmas here. Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people, Israel. Oh, man, we learned something about what Simeon recognized about this constellation of Israel. Something about who this child is. This song really has two parts. It describes Simeon's relationship to God, and it describes who this child is. When Jesus taught us to pray, he taught us to pray like what? How does it begin? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. He, he, he taught us to be, pray beginning by emphasizing our relationship with who he is. And we see that Simeon begins this the same way. He says, now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. The word Lord and bondservant describe the relationship of Simeon to God. Now, the word Lord is an interesting word for Lord. It's not the normal word for Lord. It's a word that when I say it, you're going to think, really? Because it's always used negatively in our world. It's the word despot. When you think of a despot, what do you think? It's all, I don't know that, I don't know that I've ever heard it used positively of anybody in our world. It's a word that's used several times of God in the New Testament. Well, in the Greek Old Testament as well. And it just refers to his absolute authority. And if there's any place his absolute authority over all things is exemplified, it's certainly in the birth of God as a baby. And as the one who can do what nobody's been able to ever do, to be the consoler of Israel. And so he called, he says, now despot. You are releasing your bondservant, literally your slave, by choice. And so how did Simeon see himself? He, see, he saw God as the one who's absolutely in authority and in charge of all things, and he saw himself as a slave by choice to him. And he's saying, now, now I can depart in peace According to your word, he's a man who believed that the despot could say something and he would be faithful to it. 
Simeon now experienced that, that the Lord had said, you'll see the consolation of Israel before you die. And as a slave to his master, he says, I'm released from this obligation because now I have seen the Christ child. What a beautiful description of someone's relationship to Christ, don't you think? I mean, that's, that's good terminology for any of us who know Christ, who know God. And so maybe even today in your own prayer time, you might say, despot, I'm your bond slave. It's a very right way. And may it be done according to me, according to your word. Because what you say, you do. And what you say is for my good. And then he describes the Lord Jesus as God's salvation, verse 30. He describes him as preparing him in the presence of all people. Uh, he didn't just come from the throne of heaven. He was prepared. Isn't that a beautiful description of the whole incarnation process? He prepared right under the noses of people. That's always the, one of the aspects uh, that is emphasized about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's prepared in the presence of all peoples. And interestingly, this word is a, is a different word for people. Often it's ethnos, from which we get ethnic. This is the word laos, like the country laos, which is a little bit hard to exactly nail down, but it seems to emphasize more those that will respond to God, no matter what their ethnicity is, no matter what their status in life is. And so... You have prepared him in the presence of all people. You know, that would be Mary, that would be Joseph. So far, that would be the shepherds. That would be Simeon here. It would be Anna in a few minutes. He's further described as a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. The people of Israel were always to be a light showing the way who God is, and the way to God to all the nations of the world. And what Simeon recognized and what he states in this song is that this one will fulfill that. He will be a light to those who sit in darkness. He will be a light that shows the realities of who Jesus is. And of course, the Apostle John really emphasizes this. He's a light to all people but he's uniquely the glory of your people, Israel. He will uniquely fulfill the big purposes of Israel as a nation. And so he describes who Jesus is here. And then he blesses Mary and Joseph. Of course, it says they were amazed at these things. I mean, you talk about drinking out of a fire hose. They're drinking out of a fire hose. And Simeon blesses them. He blesses Mary and Joseph. We don't know what that involved. And then he says to Mary, and most people, and I would agree with them, believe that he speaks to Mary here because Joseph seems to have passed away before Jesus entered ministry, before he entered uh, the full-time ministry at 30. We see Joseph at, when he's 12. We never see him mentioned again. And so here's a unique word to Mary. And I believe it's kind of a fulfillment of 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4, 
which says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which, which, with which we are comforted by God. I almost feel like Simeon here has been consoled by God about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and now he wants to, ahead of time, console Mary about what's in her future. He wants to help her to know that the song that she sang to Elizabeth, I am most blessed of all women, is going to come with a very painful price. There's going to be a lot of hurt in her life. Because this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. Is there anything that hurts a mother's heart more than their child being opposed and ridiculed and bullied and crucified? But there's a purpose to all that because he's appointed for the fall and the rise of many. The word rise is typically translated resurrection, for the fall and resurrection of many. And of course, this would come right out of the Old Testament about how the Messiah, the Christ, would be a stumbling block as well as a stepping stone. A stumbling block or a cornerstone, maybe is a better way to say it. And Simeon goes on and says, a sword will pierce even your own soul. And the word that he uses here is not the word for a little dagger. He's using the huge Roman sword. He says, your soul is going to be pierced with a sword. But Mary, there's a point to all this. There's a point to all of this. It is to the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus Christ is the great dividing line that reveals the thoughts of a person. The person who is proud, the person who thinks they don't, that they don't have a spiritual sickness called sin, the person who will not admit that they need God. It's Jesus and what they do with Jesus that reveals that. Always has been. It was during the three plus years of his ministry. And we see people from all aspects, religious leaders, rich people, poor people. We see many of them. And when they come in contact with Jesus, if they're proud, it comes out. Because Jesus said, you're a sinner and you need a Savior and I'm the Savior. You re need to repent and you need to believe on me and you need to begin a life of following me. And many in his days mocked him, ridiculed him, eventually put him to death. And his mother watched all that happen. How often a sword pierced her own soul. 
But then there's another response to Jesus, isn't there? There's the resurrection response. There's that response that when, when you're told about Jesus and you're told that He's the consoler, He's the help, He can do for you what nobody else can do for you because He's the wonderful counselor and the mighty God and the Prince of Peace and He's the everlasting Father and He's the Savior and He's, he's the one who can deal with your sin and forgive you of your sin and can bring a sense of wholeness and a right relationship with God. And as Jesus put it, those who, are, who know that they're sick, they go to the doctor. And those who understand they're sinners, they come to Christ. They're willing to humble themselves and say, I need a Savior. And Lord Jesus is that Savior. To the end that thoughts from many hearts still be revealed. That was true in Jesus' day, and boy, isn't it still true? I can remember when I first heard about Christ and being told of my need for Christ. I didn't see any point. I was one of those proud people. And I cannot express to you my gratefulness for God's patience toward me and His kindness towards me that He humbled me and brought me to a place where I saw my true condition, or I had some sense of my true condition. I don't think any of us ever understand our true sinfulness. And I saw my need for a Savior, and what a difference that day made. What a difference that day made. So what do we see here about God and us as people? Well, I wrote down some things in your notes, um, but you can probably come up with better things. What do we see about God? We see that He is the despot. He is the one who is authoritative over all things, from creation to consummation and every detail in between. We see that He desperately loves people and that He has provided a way of salvation for people. And all of this comes to us through His Word, and so probably the way to sum that up is He keeps His Word. He keeps His Word. He kept His Word. So Mary and Joseph, they're just obeying some laws that God had put in place 1,400 years beforehand. And, and as they obey that law, 1,400 years later, they, they end up in contact with Simeon. Is that crazy? There's no accidents. There's just divine appointments. And just faithfulness to the Word. Simeon's faithfulness to his Word because God keeps his Word. And as his faithful followers keep his Word, they become and they see the impossible. They see the impossible. They're saved by him. They're consoled by him. They sing and they become a blessing to other people. We see that Jesus is the light to all people and He is the glory of the people of Israel. And we see that one's response to Jesus determines their fall or resurrection. To each of us this morning, either Jesus is offensive and we don't really need Him, 
or we understand he's the cornerstone of our life. And we're willing to let go of everything else in order to follow him. Now you might say, well, yeah, but I'm kind of in the middle ground. Oh, no, you're not. There's no sense you pretending. You're not in the middle ground. There's no middle ground. If Jesus is not your Lord and Savior and you're following him, you hate him. You have your own agenda. You're going to call your own shots. You're the Lord of your life. You're the boss. And so don't, don't kid yourself into thinking that there's some middle ground here. There is no middle ground. Don't think that you can keep Jesus at arm's length. He's the despot. Despots don't like being kept at arm's length. They won't be kept at arm's length. And if that's the land you're trying to live in, repent today and recognize that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. And recognize you need him as your consolation. You need him as your savior. You need him as your king. You need him as your Lord. And repent of all that and begin to follow him today and spend the rest of your days saying, you're my despot, I'm your slave. So what's the song that comes out of your heart as a result of this truth, these truths, this beauty of who Christ is? If he's done that for you in the past and you've experienced the impossible, what kind of a song comes out of your heart? It's a song of praise to God, isn't it? And... Uh, and if, if you're in that place where you've recognized that, that your response to Jesus has been one of unbelief and rejection, and you're, you're going to change that today, and you're going to put your faith and trust in Him, and you're going to repent of that today, that's a song that comes out of your heart as well. Oh, God, forgive me for keeping you on the shelf. Forgive me for keeping you in the back seat you don't know anything about a back seat. You don't know anything about the shelf. That's just a figment of my own imagination that I've created so that I can stay in charge of my life. What a high-handed act of rebellion towards you. I repent of that today. And I am going to believe upon you. And I'm going to live with you as my despot and me as your bondservant. That's a song. Take a couple moments and just write down a couple of verses of song or declarations or praise to God. And if you're not a writer, just go ahead and begin to verbalize it silently to the Lord. Let this be the application of this passage to your life this morning.